welcome to the Assembling Inclusion podcast. On this show, we feature different programs, individuals, and initiatives focused on being more inclusive of individual needs. We invite you to learn right alongside us. If you want some additional resources or access to our courses, please visit our website or follow us on social media. But for right now, let's get right to the episode. Artificial intelligence is always a popular topic of conversation, but what's the connection between inclusion and AI? That's what we'll be discussing in this episode. I spoke to Aaron Gustafson for Microsoft AI for Accessibility, a program that provides grants for projects that focus on making life more accessible for people with disabilities. Aaron and I talk about the impact the program has had over the past couple of years, the types of projects and initiatives that have received funding, and how each and every project is a step toward making the world a more inclusive place. So let's dive right in. Welcome to the first Assembling Inclusion episode of 2023. Today we are talking to Aaron Gustafson from Microsoft's AI for Accessibility program. So Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So just to start us off, I wanted to ask about the inspiration behind starting the AI for Accessibility program. I know I had read that it was part of the AI for good or like a subcategory of it, but what prompted Microsoft to really want to focus on individuals who may be classified with a disability? So I can't speak from experience of having been there at the time. I am a recent convert to this team, but I was around with the folks who were sort of putting this all together back in the day. Wendy Chisholm and some of the other folks who were involved early on saw promise in the the potential of AI and machine learning to be able to sort of pick apart some of the things that are really challenging from both an assistive technology standpoint, like being able to remediate things that are typically challenging to do from a programmatic standpoint, or to create new opportunities for approaching things in new ways that would require a lot of manpower otherwise, for lack of a better term, but more people power to be able to um, to achieve certain tasks. So it opened up new doors and it was sort of a, hey, this is kind of an interesting space. What if we have a grant program where we fund people to go and explore what it means to be able to do this? Could we have AI be able to interpret sign language? Could we have AI be able to do some of these other more challenging things that computers haven't been able to do in the past? Can we teach computers basically to be like us in some some of those ways, right? Some of those ideas have panned out. Some of those ideas are like, wow, we still have a lot more work to do in this space. That was sort of the gemination of it. It is sort of under that umbrella of the AI for good program, which there's also AI for health, AI for earth. There's a bunch of those sibling programs under that umbrella. I really love that just because a lot of my research and my work was in assistive adaptive technology, but there are so many limitations still. I mean, it's amazing the things that can be done and how it really has improved people's lives, but there is so much more that technology hasn't been able to do. So I think that's why I was really drawn to the program. And I was like, I have to talk about this. And I was looking at all the different programs that exist as a result from it. And I was like, wow, those are really taking into consideration the limitations of the technology that exists and really trying to train the computers to be a little bit more accessible for people. And I think it has the opportunity to work in multiple facets. How can we 
break down barriers for people with disabilities in order to improve their lives. But then on the flip side is how can we build better tooling for developers and other engineers in order to build more accessible products that are going to be usable by a broader swath of people. And I like the fact that we can kind of tackle this from those both sides and try and basically make it all the way around and kind of create a virtuous circle around the whole thing and be able to really change people's lives and allow them to participate in modern life in the way that they should be able to, right? To really tear down those barriers and remove exclusion from people. Exactly. And the program I noticed from the website focuses on, I think it was four key areas. There was education, employment, community, and home. Do you know, happen to know why those four areas in particular were chosen? I mean, I'm sure it's very broad to be able to say just accessibility, but was there a reason behind choosing those four areas? Yeah, those are the areas that the team was really looking to improve the lives of people with disabilities. And those are, those are the buckets in a broad sense when the program was kind of just getting started and we're trying to figure out like, where are we going with this? Those sort of made sense and they haven't aged as well. I think they're still useful, but I think there's areas where they overlap. There's areas where they're a little bit limiting or could be confusing. There's lots of nuance and there's innovations that span multiple categories. So it's just the whole thing has gotten a little bit fuzzier. And for instance, like our investments in mental health, which is that I came in and did our first mental health round of this year, we've done one, one previously, and we're in the midst of a low cost assistive technology round. Those don't neatly fit into those four buckets. So like to force them in like mental health fits under community, like that's where we, we've kind of bucketed it, but it's like, is that really community? Like, and it could have impacts on work. Like there's all sorts of areas, right? Like it just kind of flows across all of those. So like the, the buckets, I think were a good idea for initially beginning the program to think about like, where are the areas that we want to begin investment? But as we start to get a better sense of where are we, where can we make impact? Where can we really improve things? That initial thought hasn't really aged as well, let's say. We've carved out low-cost assistive technologies as its own like fifth category for right now because it didn't really fit into those other ones neatly. And so I think as we move forward, I believe we're going to be moving away from those buckets and trying to think about a, por a portfolio overall and where are the areas of investment that are maybe disability-specific or technology-specific if it has to do with text or video or these sorts of areas of investment as opposed to dealing specifically with like, this is a community thing, this is your work life, this is your home life. I don't know that anybody really has those sorts of boundaries between everything that's going on, especially in the last two years. At this point, everything is kind of blending together. I was thinking about that, even as I was looking at some of the projects, I was like, oh, these really could fit in multiple areas or it could be useful in multiple areas. Like if you're using it in education, it could also be applicable depending on your employment. So that's great that there's kind of that evolution that shift away from those four categories and even to include obviously the mental health, which is mm -hmm. huge and can really fits across everything because it yeah. kind of is an overarching idea. But I love the focus on the low cost assistive technology. And I had questions about that later on, but I really, I like the commitment to that because assistive tech is so expensive. Yes. So like the focus on like, here's a solution. Mm -hmm. Also, it's going to be affordable for you yeah. is a great, focus, I think. Yeah. I remember years ago, back when I lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I was doing some work there and ended up getting hooked up with the folks at Signal Centers, which is a community program to provide assistive technologies and to train people in using things like screen readers and stuff like that. And they had a lot of really interesting programs, like taking kids toys. And instead of having 
the little push buttons on the plush animal, they would make an external remote that like a, a kid with a limb difference or something could actually use so that they can enjoy that little talking toy. But other things that they did is they would have things that people could borrow or that they could come and experience. And I remember one of the things that they had there looked like an old school overhead projector, but it was for people to be able to read their mail. It was sort of like an OCR system that would look down and you put the piece of mail underneath this camera on this tray and it would read you like who the mail was from and read you the letter or whatever. And if I'm remembering correctly, it was a number of years ago, but I think it was like $1,200 for that. And then right around the same time, someone came out with a $5 application for your iPhone that you could basically point it and it would do the same thing, right? And like the ability to reduce that barrier entry to make something more affordable really got me thinking about all of the financial barriers that are in place. Some of which, you know, durable medical equipment, there's a lot of like process and overhead that goes into the creation of some of those things, but then there are other things that could be simplified drastically. And it, it feels like there are some people who are just like, oh, I can make a lot of money on this because there's only a few people that need it. And so I'm going to triple the price that I would charge if it was something for everybody. There seems to be a lot of that, which is not great. So I appreciate no. the focus on making sure that things are affordable, even just simple things. Like my students had specific learning disabilities. That was my population that I worked with most of the time. And like, even just like text to speech, speech to text mm -hmm. things, like why would yep. you be charging this amount of money when there's so many apps and extensions that do it for either very affordable prices, a couple dollars a student or for free, like, why right. are we going to pay hundreds of dollars? Like, it's yeah. just... It's a balance. So anyway, I was looking at this year's grant application and I noticed, and obviously funding is a huge part of the grant, but I also noticed there are additional benefits that companies or organizations can get like the consulting or the mentoring pieces. And I was wondering yep. if you could speak to how those supports are given to the grant recipients. I would say, especially in the realm of like AI and ML, you, know, you can have somebody who's got a really innovative idea for how to improve accessibility, but they may not have specifically the AI or ML chops, or they may be just getting their feet wet in that area. And so recognizing that, we wanted to provide opportunities for folks to have some consulting to help them with development of their models or for figuring out what sorts of tooling they needed from Azure Cognitive Services, since we include some Azure credits as part of our grant rewards as well. And so being able to provide that to folks is super helpful. We also like to match them up with subject matter experts from within Microsoft. Sometimes those are folks on product teams. Sometimes they're folks in Microsoft research that might be working in a similar area. And then they can provide mentorship and other expertise in the space that they're working. And then we do have some additional like consulting hours to help out with data modeling and, and those sorts of things. And then of course the funding can be used for labeling or for other sorts of things that, that people need to pay, whether they want to run through a service like Mechanical Turk, certainly the cash portion of that can be used for that as well. But I think that the mentorship and the consulting things can really help you take your project that you have a pretty good idea on and learn from others and really be able to accelerate that in a way that you may not be able to with your local network. That's a really great piece. Obviously, yes, funding is huge. But I think the fact that you have access to those resources to really be able to scale your idea and to have access to those experts is probably really beneficial. And I saw, is there correct me if I'm wrong, is there like a community too for current and former grant yeah. recipients that like people can like 
it's almost like the collegial, they can collaborate together too. Yeah. So we do these grant rounds. So you end up coming out with certain cohorts, right. For each of the grant rounds, but then they have the ability to within their cohort communicate with each other, but then to participate with all of the current folks and the alumni, they do periodic events. There's like a monthly newsletter kind of sharing what they're learning from each other. And then we also try and connect them with each other as well. So sometimes we'll have a current grantee that we're like, gosh, you're sort of working in the similar space to a previous grantee or where they're starting to explore things. So like, hey, do you two want to talk? And we'll try and hook people up that way to try and kind of help lift all the boats. That's really great to have that, the regular mentorship of experts to the grant recipients, but then also to have the people who have gone through the program, give that experience as well. And then, like you said, that building off of, especially if you're so connected, like why reinvent something all over again when somebody else did something similar and you could collaborate and really build a great product together. So I was looking at the evaluation process for the most recent grant application. And one of the things you were looking for things like innovation, like there was like a list, like innovation, diversity, budget, sustainability. What is the evaluation process actually like? I mean, I've done so many like evaluation things for like conferences and stuff. And like, there's always like a rubric or something. So I was curious what your, yours was. (laughs) We do have a rubric that we're looking at all of these things. And basically it goes through that list of things from the RFP documentation, just so that there aren't any surprises. Obviously, first we look at innovation. Is this project pushing beyond the current state of the art? If so, how is it doing that? What opportunities does it open up? Not just for its own project, but in the future. Then we look at what is the potential impact of the project? How valuable would this innovation be for the community or the communities that it's intended for? And then we we ask ourselves, are there potential ripple effects for other communities? Are there other projects that could benefit from the information that we learn in the process of executing this particular project? Then we look at feasibility as the next piece. And so our grants are for a 12-month period specifically. So we're considering what is the feasibility of achieving the project's goals in that 12-month period? Because if it's this huge, massive thing that's going to take 400 people to do, and it's going to be like a a four or five-year project, that's probably not a good fit for us because we do want to make sure that we have something that's achievable in that 12-month period. So we may even say, you know, this is a laudable goal that you have here for this project, but... What do you think about scaling it down to this that we think that you could achieve in 12 months and we'll have potentially some discussion with the folks about doing that. Then we talk about diversity. And so we're looking at the diversity of the project teams as well as the intended audience. So we like to see teams, obviously, that include folks from the disability communities that they're looking to serve. It's always super helpful. But we also want to know that they have diverse perspectives writ large, just so that there are a lot of different lived experiences being brought to bear on whatever the product or the research is that's being done. We recognize that not everybody may be able to have people with a particular disability that they're looking to target on their team. So community is another aspect that we look at. So we want to see engagement with the disability community that they're looking to serve, as well as community support. We want to see that evidence, whether that's coming through partnerships, co-design workshops, those sorts of things. We want to see that engagement following on the nothing about us without us mindset, right? So of course, we don't want a project to just wither once it gets past the 12 month period. So we look at sustainability and that can look different for, let's say it's a startup that we're funding or a particular aspect of an existing business that we're funding versus a research project in a university. The sustainability piece can vary across those, but it is something that we take into consideration with the applications. Are there other 
institutions that are going to be funding this moving forward. It's helpful to know we have funding for three years for research in this area from parent organization or something like that. Or we have this existing business that is funding this and we've got this business plan for what it is that we're developing now and how that will be able to be sustainable from now into the future. And that factors into things like budget. We want to make sure that if we're giving money to folks, that it's going to have the greatest impact when it comes to helping people with disabilities. So we're going to pay attention to the budget. We want to make sure that what is being requested is reasonable for what it is that is attempting to be achieved. We want to look at how they're proposing to spend it. If they're asking us for a million dollars and 80% of that is going to overhead, that's not really something that we're into. So we want to make sure that the dollars that we're committing are being focused on doing the actual research or hiring folks from the disability community to help with co-design or to help with tagging, or if it's something where we want to train computer vision to better be able to interpret photos taken by blind people, we want to pay pay blind people to go out there and take photos, right? Like those sorts of things so that we have that data to feed into it. And that's totally cool for us to have money spent that way. And then finally, kind of back to the low cost thing that we were talking about earlier, we want to maximize the potential to get these funded innovations into people's lives. So we pay attention to what is the cost to the end user? How are they looking to fund this? If it's not from those end users, who's paying the bill and how could that end up impacting the user? Is there a third party that may be taking someone's private data in exchange for providing access to this technology or something like that? And we want to just make sure everything's on the up and up and make sure that it's something that's going to be not only valuable, but affordable to folks. And the more we can do to drive down those costs, the more opportunities we can create for people in low and middle income countries, which is another area of focus that we've got. So we evaluate all of the applications with respect to those criteria and also with respect to existing projects that we have in our portfolio, what we've funded in the past. And we want to balance the kind of innovations that we're funding, as well as the disability communities that we're looking to impact with those investments. That's a lot of different components, but I appreciate the focus of like, we're making sure that people in the disability community are either represented or their voices are heard in some capacity, like whether they're on the team, or like you said, they're co-designing. I think I've been interviewing people for the past year and that's always like the recurring theme is like the nothing about us without us. Like I think yeah. every episode that like gets like repeated, which is yeah. great as it should like, yeah. drives the point home <laughs> yeah. that there should always be that opportunity and that voice. So that's great that there is a focus on that on top of everything, like the sustainability of the budget, which is obviously important as well, but I appreciate that commitment to making sure that they're represented obviously in a product that is going to eventually impact them anyway. So you want to yeah. make sure that you have those voices and those experiences on the, absolutely in, at the table. And you had mentioned it briefly, but I wanted to ask about that. This year's grant is equitable access in low and middle income countries. But I noticed that, and correct me if I'm wrong, did it deviate from the requirement of AI this year? The mental health round d- did not. We included AI and ML as part of that. The low cost assistive technology does not have a requirement for doing any sort of artificial intelligence or machine learning work. It can be part of it, but it's not a, not a hard requirement. Is that because it's the last year of the grant or was that just a decision that was made just for this year? For low cost assistive tech specifically, this is something we've done in the past. This is our second low cost funding round. And there's just a lot of need, especially in low and middle income countries for assistive technologies that are affordable. And so honestly, as somebody who's come into the AI for accessibility program, I see huge value in AI being part of it, but I think of the team 
as accessibility innovation. And I feel like the AI component can sort of hamstring us a little bit in terms of being able to fund really valuable and potentially impactful projects. And that's not to say that that there aren't awesome AI-driven projects out there. There absolutely are. But the low-cost AT was the first times that we're like, hey, let's not put this artificial thing out there that somebody has to meet in order to participate in this round because it's the AI for accessibility program. But let's just say, hey, it's not necessary. We want to know what is the accessible innovation that you're providing? How are you trying to get low cost opportunities for people with disabilities and being able to fund that? So that could look like funding infrastructure stuff. Like it's really hard to find out details about like physical assistive technologies to be able to see like a prosthesis or something like that to evaluate it. If you happen to have access to the internet, you can try and find it usually in other countries. If you're somewhere like in in rural Mali or something like that, like if you happen to be lucky enough to get access to the internet and surf to find what it is that you're looking for, for yourself or someone that you love or care for, then you have to go through the process of trying to obtain that. If you do manage to do that and you manage to like get the money together to do it, which is probably a pretty expensive endeavor shipping aside, then once you get it, does it actually meet your needs or was that a waste of money? How do you maintain it if it requires maintenance? There's a lot of other stuff that we don't always think about, but those are the sorts of things that we know we need. We need that infrastructure for getting stuff to people, right? And enabling them to see, okay, what is this? Will it work for me? Not only how much is it, how much is it to maintain? What do I have to know about it? Like all of those sorts of things. And that really doesn't exist as you move into low and middle income countries, especially on like the continent of Africa, but even throughout a lot of Asia as well. And frankly, even in the middle of America, that can, <laughs> that can be a challenge, right? Like there, there are lots of places that we can run into this. And so we've decided to put our focus on low and middle income countries, We're particularly interested in funding projects that are being built up on the ground by innovators in those communities, as opposed to folks in the US or in Europe who are partnering is great, but certainly not like folks who are just like, we want to go into this place and do X, Y, and Z for those people there. Now we really want to have the folks on the ground saying, this is what we need. Here's what we need to do to go about achieving what it is that we have as a goal. And then how can we help fund them to make that happen? That makes a lot of sense because if somebody comes in, they're not the expert in what is necessary in that type of environment. So it's better to have somebody who, like you said, is on the ground, knows exactly what the issues are now and can come up with a solution to the problem that really fits their needs. How many applications do you usually get? I can't speak to the low cost round that's open now. That one closes on November 4th and it's towards the end of October when we're recording this, I know it'll be January when it comes out. (laughs) But for the last mental health round, I think it was somewhere around like 150 applications. Every time it varies, we sometimes get several hundred. We sort of window those down to a short list of apps that we really want to dig a little bit deeper into as our overall team. And then we'll pick maybe... 10 max to come and pitch us. And that's usually like a 15 minute pitch followed by some Q and A. And then we typically fund somewhere in the range of two to three projects. So it's like a pretty drastic cut each time, which is, you know, it's hard. Definitely the last round, the mental health round, 
there were a lot of projects that I just like fell in love with and really wanted to do something with. But when we started getting down to it, we had to make some tough decisions because we've only got so much money to spend on it. And so in those instances, it's like, okay, these are the ones that I can fund. These are the ones that I can try and do like something else for, connect them with other people who are working in that space or try to open up other opportunities for them, point them to other programs that exist in Microsoft or elsewhere so that hopefully it gets to happen. But it's just kind of the way it is sometimes. Yeah, I don't envy you all for having to make those decisions because I'm sure everything is like everybody has an amazing idea. It's just that's a big, a big shift, like from hundreds down to two or three. So I'd imagine that it would crush me. So I don't envy you for. (laughs) Yeah. And there's sort of like, this is really interesting and this is a great innovation, but then there's the, this is a super pressing need. Like, oh my gosh, we really need to help out folks who are suffering with trauma, like living in war zones and stuff like that. Your heart aches for what they're going through and to want to provide relief through mental health treatment and stuff like that. But you may not be able to do that because there are a bunch of other pressing needs as well with people that need assistance. It's hard to strike that balance. And I don't think we'll ever do it perfectly. We just try to do about the best we can. And that's where the rubric is super helpful. (laughs) It sucks sometimes to have to fall back on that and not go with your gut and your heart, but I think it's the most fair way to, to approach it for all the folks that are applying. That makes sense. There's a structure to the decision-making process then, which does help. I was looking at all of the projects that have been done from the past rounds on the website. And it was really, it was nice to see like the connectedness and the obvious commitment to accessibility that were throughout all of the projects, but like how they all kind of diverge from that main idea of accessibility. So what have been some of the projects to you that have really stood out as being impactful in like specific regions or communities? What really like stands out to you? There are a couple that come to mind. I'm really intrigued by, I don't know if you saw the WeWalk attachment for the white cane. Um, So you're talking about a white cane for a blind user and it's got inbuilt motion sensors and voice control, and it's got machine learnings going through it to improve like wayfinding, which is pretty amazing for folks who are blind who have low vision and who are used to working with a cane. So that that one's particularly interesting. There's the work that's taking place with the UW University of Washington. They're doing stuff with Talk Life and Supportive, which is about training natural language models to recognize empathy in text-based messages and then helping to suggest more empathetic responses for people in sort of a peer-to-peer mental health care space. I think of it as sort of like grammarly, but like, how can I be a more empathetic person? That something that I'm about to say may not come across as being particularly empathetic. So if I can learn to tune how I'm saying things, I can get better at that over time and have less and less of a need, hopefully for a tool like that. That's a particularly interesting one as well. Then the first center for autism and innovation at Vanderbilt university has a virtual job coach for candidates with autism to prep for job interviews. And it helps to detect stress and attention and stuff like that, which I think is another really interesting area of exploration. I mean, there are a ton of really amazing projects that have been funded. Those are the the three that kind of stand out to me. I I like each of them. It was very difficult for me to like, I have, I swear, I can't pull it up right now, but I have like 20 pages of notes on the projects. Cause I was like, these are all so great. And I have, I have a giant list that I keep of just inclusion, innovation related topics, Mm -hmm. like every single project I'm like writing down because there were so many and they were all fantastic in their own way and touch on so many different aspects of life. And just, I could see how each of them would make somebody's life 
that much easier. So I'm going to make sure I link that page in the show notes. So yeah, there's some, to look at there that. definitely <laughs> some really interesting ones. And there's ones like I mentioned the thing about paying blind folks to take photos, right? That was the Orbit project, which stands for Object Recognition for Blind Image Training. That was done by City University of London. And it may not seem all that obvious to folks who are thinking, okay, blind people taking pictures, how is this useful? But if you think about it, somebody who is blind or has low vision, they're not going to frame images in quite the same way. Depending on what it is that you're looking to do, it it forces your models to be a little bit more battle-tested, hardened. Like I, I tend to think about this stuff. So I, I come from the web web world. And so I'm always thinking about how can I build websites that are super resilient, right? That can basically take a beating. I, I like to equate them to like, was it the 1965 Chrysler Imperial, which is the car that's been banned from the demolition derby because you just can't destroy it. And so I, I want like the things that I build to be that sort of robust. I want it to be able to keep on ticking. And so if you've got a computer vision model that's trying to recognize objects, right? What better way to test it than to have the object out of focus, the object slightly blurry because the camera's in motion when it's being snapped, like where you're only getting three quarters of it because it's not in frame, as opposed to always having it perfectly centered, the object against a white background with no shadowing. And like, that's not like the equivalent of animal training <laughs> equivalent of like <laughs> teaching a parrot to like say a word or something like that, as opposed to teaching them actual human speech, right? So yes, you can get it to recognize a donut when it's sitting against a white background, but only certain kinds of donuts. Whereas <laughs> if you throw it like lots of different kinds of donuts with lots of different toppings on them, with lots of different croppings, with lots of different like levels of zoom and blurriness and all that stuff, you, you build a more robust model. And so like, there are some things that we've funded that are sort of lower level, I guess you could say that, that may not seem particularly interesting on the surface, but when you actually dig into it and start to say, okay, how can we really use this to improve the robustness of the models that we're using in other spaces, then it becomes particularly interesting and ends up feeding back to, if you're familiar with seeing AI, where somebody can basically like point their cell phone camera at something and have it tell them what's going on. Like, that is a scenario where having that extra data around, like when something's blurry or cropped weirdly or something like that's going to be super helpful. I could definitely see that. And my last question for you is, I mean, we're coming toward the end of the five-year timeline for the program. So I wanted to know about what the future kind of looks like for this accessibility-based program. I know you had talked a little bit about the beginning, how through the program, like there was that evolution away from the four categories to kind of more of a broad topic. So I was just curious what the future holds, I guess. For yeah, the program. yeah. As you said, we're coming up on the end of our five-year period, which was the original mandate of the program. The program is not going away. We are going to be continuing to invest in this space. We're in the planning phases for this right now, but I think you will start to see a shift more towards accessibility innovation in a broad sense than specifically focusing on AI as, as being a cornerstone of that. I think it's absolutely going to be part of what we're doing and what we're continuing to do, but I think we want to have a little bit broader view of accessibility innovation and not bind ourselves to only talking about this in the context of AI, because it is kind of limiting and, and there's a ton to do and there's a ton to explore. And there's certainly lots of thorny issues to unpack and, and explore. However, in terms of being able to fund innovation that's going to change people's lives, that innovation should be able to come from anywhere. 
right? As I've gotten more in depth in this space and started to do more outreach, I've seen some amazing videos that people have posted of electrical engineers, what work they're doing to create sign language interpretation using cameras or using specific gloves or all sorts of things like that are really interesting ways that people are looking at how to augment speech, how to improve comprehension through something like captioning in VR, like those sorts of things. And I think there's room to explore things like real-time translations and how that impacts the accessibility community. There's certainly work being done that Microsoft's a part of now that is concerned with helping voice assistants to better understand people who may have a disability that impacts their speech. So there's work being done in that space in a collaborative fashion where we're able to work with partner organizations to gather up that information and and then for different software vendors to be able to build models based on that. So I think there's a lot to explore, some of which will involve AI, some of which will involve activating people and building the networks that we need in order to improve the lives of people with disabilities. So I think there's a lot to do. I think there's a lot of innovation out there and, and stuff that we can tap into. To me, the most interesting thing is seeing us shift very intentionally toward looking at low and middle income countries and what solutions are people needing on the ground there and how can we bolster their efforts to not only help that community, but to create the inevitable ripples that will then end up impacting folks who are in wealthy Western countries as well. I view it a lot as creating curb cuts. We're sort of going out there with our program and and helping to take a sledgehammer to the curbs in order to build the early curb cuts that will eventually help the kid on a bicycle and the mom pushing a stroller or the UPS delivery person who's who's got their cart of packages they're bringing around and stuff like that, right? So I think the more that we can do to identify early stage innovation and try and help fund that and foster that and, and to create a community in that space, that's where I see us heading and where I'd like us to be. That'll be really exciting to explore just accessibility innovation as a whole. I could see how that would be impactful from those low and middle income countries and how that would kind of give people there more of an opportunity then to explore like the starting stages Mm -hmm. of getting that type of equipment. You had talked about the speech recognition. I'm so excited about that. That was something we struggled with in my classroom all the time. Any student who had a speech impairment would get so frustrated by the voice typing. And if they had dyslexia on top of it and they needed the voice typing, it was just like a huge frustrating experience. So I I was doing reading on that because I was like, I, that's something that I saw a need for. That was something my students were always frustrated with. So when you had mentioned that, I was like, yes. That I mean, is exactly it, what I was looking for. <laughs> exactly. And it, it, it's very much like the Orbit program, right? Like doing the same thing yeah. for voice that you're doing for photography and for image recognition and that sort of thing. So I think those sorts of things are so fundamental in terms of where we need to, to be at. I, I consider it sort of like in building a home, like the finish work is great, but if you don't have really good plumbing and structure and those underlying foundational pieces, then it's just decoration. And, and we exactly. really need to get those, those fundamental things taken care of. And there's a lot of innovation that's needed in that space. So. Exactly. Every, everything needs a strong foundation. So that's great that that's going to be explored in the future. And I want to thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us today and for telling us all about the AI for accessibility program and where it's 
been and where it's going and just all of the wonderful work that's being done through this grant program. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Katie. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Assembling Inclusion podcast. I hope the information in this episode taught you something new, gave you a new idea, or showcased a new perspective. If you liked the episode, feel free to leave us a review or comment. If you have a recommendation for an individual or an organization who would make a great guest, you can message us on Twitter or Instagram or send us an email at assemblinginclusion at gmail.com. See you next time.